welcome to the Social World Podcast. Welcome back again. I'm Dave Niven, and it's glad it's a good time to have you back. Thank you very much indeed for joining me again. I can't believe the number of episodes we've got through. It's been a little bit of a gap since we did the last one, but um, the National Health Service had me for a little bit there, so I had to give them my full attention. Now, you can download this uh, on iTunes. You can listen to it on the website, uh, socialworldpodcast.com, or there's always Stitcher or Podfeed or any of the other places. If you've got some feedback about the program, you can always get it on um, Twitter, at Dave Niven, or you can hit that little button beside it called uh, on voicemail, you know, and uh, just hit the button and record your message, and I will give it all my attention. Now, today... I have got a very special guest, an old friend of mine, Michael Hames. Now, Michael was a detective superintendent when he left the Metropolitan Police. Oh, it must be um, back in 1994 now. And he was originally the head of what was called the Obscene Publications Squad, and he turned it into what was then called the Paedophile Unit. But for five years, he was a very leading light uh, in the statutory services as far as child protection was concerned, and he did an awful lot. In fact, you could have called him one of the pioneers of developing our answer to child protection in this country. He's been very prominent since as a consultant, and he still works full-time consulting with various agencies, supporting care homes, and with UK-American agencies as well in terms of actually looking at their child protection policies and procedures, and as a consultant to them as well. But also, he's sort of pretty well known in the media as the kind of, as a go-to person when it comes to child abuse. So, Michael, welcome to the programme. Hello, David. It's been a long time. I know, I know. <laughs> now, listen, when you were working in the front line, as it were, from the police point of view, back in the mid-90s, there was this particular landscape that was developing. I mean, child sexual abuse wasn't really um, as as kind of prominent in, in the media or anywhere else as it is today. We were, weren't half as aware of what goes on, but yet we were developing things all the time, and it felt very much like a sort of a frontier spirit, if I remember rightly. Now, that's all that time ago, but you've been working in it ever since, so you've seen the developing landscape. I want to ask you what you think it might look like in about 10 years from now. You know, where are we going with this, with all these inquiries and all the people coming out, historical abuse and everything? I mean, what's your take on where it's going? Well, as you say, uh, over the last 10 years in particular, um, the, the landscape has changed enormously. People are actually taking the problem seriously now. Um, and in 10 years hence... I think it will be still top of the agenda because, after all, after murder, child sex abuse is, you know, the second most evil crime. And so it it has to remain at the top of the agenda. I think what's happening at the moment is is that um, we're, to a certain extent, clearing up a lot of the historical abuse. um, And hopefully in 10 years' time, um, some of these really old cases will have been dealt with. But... Let's not forget that the, 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 the child sexual abuse is not about yesterday. It's about today, and it's about the fact that children are being abused mainly in the, in the family, um, and that's something we really don't haven't got grips with yet. Uh, and I think most of the problems that we had before are still there in terms of children being um, 
unwilling to, to speak out. And in fact, what often happens is that they will, they will disclose maybe in their 20s or 30s, having, for all the reasons that we know about, kept it to themselves. And so you'll still have a certain amount of, of um, past historic abuse to deal with, but not the sort of things that we're looking at at the moment, which are 20, 30 years ago, which is actually really uh, occupying a tremendous amount of, of um, police time. So, yeah, it's always been there. The, the thing was, Dave, if you remember, um, when we sort of started out, we were we were trying to work out what it was we were dealing with mm. um, because it was important to get to know how it was that people went about the business of abusing children. It was, it, to, to my mind, in, in practical terms, it, it, it didn't serve a huge purpose in trying to work out why they did it. Because, in fact, I was talking to an old friend, Eileen Vizard, who's a consultant psychiatrist, and she said, well, we're still, we're still actually trying to find out why people do these things. Yeah. But what was important was that we found out how they went about it. And so the way that the principal way in which we, 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 uh, we looked at it was to talk to people who abused. I said, OK, you do this. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. And from that, we were able to construct um, methods of, of uh, strategies of, of, of how to deal with it. And also interview techniques were enhanced because we knew how to talk to them. Because you don't talk to a child abuser in the same way that you might talk to an armed robber, for example. It's a completely different mindset. Mm. And of course, the other agencies weren't as coherent as they are today. You know, they weren't working together as well, were no. they? Well, no, I mean, we had working together, but no, that was in name only um, because people were so keen to keep information to themselves. So we didn't share information with each other. Um, and it wasn't it, actually I don't think it was about data protection. I think it was about trying to keep hold of what you got. Uh, and I was trying to break that down so that we all said to each other, OK, I've got this bit of information. You've got that bit of information. Where do we go from here? And in fact, um, we had a, a social worker attached to my office at Scotland Yard for a while, who was funded by the London Borough of Brent, uh, who was helping us with some of our, our, our operations. Incidentally, then what we what we set about to do was not to take over the job of child protection units uh, in the field, as it were, because they were dealing with reported crime. We were proactively targeting child mm. to them mm. without the children actually um, disclosing to us, and and that was that was hugely important. No, I mean, there's so many different threads, aren't there, Mike? I mean, uh, then as now, in fact, probably even more so then, um, we didn't really have a therapeutic infrastructure to refer victims onto, did we? As such, it was more of the traditional, it was either psychiatry or counselling of some kind, but there wasn't anything that was um, universally organised, was there? No, victims have, have traditionally been abandoned in all sorts of ways. I mean, from the police point of view, as soon as the job's finished, then you know we don't actually have any further contact with the victim. Mm. Um, we move on to the next one and then... So, so, and obviously victims need a tremendous amount of support, therapeutic support, as you intimate. Um, and certainly in the days that I was at the Yard, 
we were concerned about it, but we couldn't do anything about it. Now I think we've got more therapeutic input um, into assisting victims in all sorts of ways. I mean, you know, when you have a large scale um, disaster or shooting, then local authorities put uh, therapists in straight away to to try and help victims and people mm. who've seen these things. So I think it, that that on on that side, it's getting a bit better. So many different roads to have a look down then and now. Well, let's just um, let's go overseas for a second. Eh? You were um, whilst you were at Scotland Yard, you chaired um, an Interpol committee on offences against minors, and if I remember rightly, that involved top police officers from all around the world coming together about twice a year. That's right, yes. Um, to look at ways of sharing information, um, sharing techniques and strategies, and, and just essentially in trying to improve the service that each force gives. Um, I mean, nowadays, I rather suspect that um, that happens much faster because of the speed of communication and the internet and goodness knows what else. But the principle's the same. I mean, have you noticed any particular good developments of that? Because I hear stories that it's still not as good as it could be. Well, I think one of the problems you have is that you've got a plethora of, of organisations. You've got Europol, Interpol, um, and, uh, you know, people that are confined to their own their, their own landmass. Uh, we had a tremendous amount of contact with the Americans um, and we actually were working with them on strategies with the FBI in particular looking at um, particularly ways in which uh, which offenders were, were doing their business but also um, a tremendous amount of, of information was passed between us about individuals and we mm. were getting lists of people who were um, um, trying to get hold of uh, child abuse images but that said of course that's exploded since and that the amount of information that comes in normally can't be dealt with very quickly because you're talking about two or three thousand names they come into the um, the National Crime Agency where they've got to be sorted and sent out to forces. And that's a huge problem because, you know, how many can you deal with? How many can a force deal with at any one time? So you sort them into uh, how dangerous you think these people might be in terms of, of their access to children. So you'd look at uh, school teachers, social workers, policemen first. Um, and by the time you, you, you start arresting them and then it goes into the media, then people will scurry about throwing their um, their computers into the into the river and trying to uh, you know, get away with it. Mm. And the other thing is that each of these cases, every one is very, very complicated. It's not just a matter of going into somebody's house, picking up the computer, taking it away and having a look at it. You've got to have a look and see who is likely to be, who's been abused. You've got to try and identify the children whose images are on the screen. Mm. You've got to look at the person themselves to see whether they have access to children. So it, it no, is, it, 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 I get it, mate. It's really so very relevant, too, to today, because it was only a couple of weeks ago that the BBC, I believe, did a Freedom of Information request for all the police forces mm. and, um, asking for the details of their high-tech units. Yeah. And they found that there was, as you would expect, a terrific variation across the country, but that in the worst cases, uh, there were people who um, had been reported, say a family had reported that their daughter was being groomed or something like that, 
by so-and-so, and the police had gone and arrested so-and-so, and confiscated all his electronic equipment, you know, smartphones, tablets, computers, mm. whatever, and effectively hadn't touched it for a year. That's right. That's now, right. So they bail people for a year at a time. Now, um, that, as you know, has been the subject of a lot of discussion recently about how long people should have to wait before mm. knowing when they're going or if they're going to be prosecuted. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's a huge hold-up. And, it's, and we know it's a resource issue. I mean, nobody's doing it deliberately. But, um, I mean, and we hope that the, the, the settlement that's been done recently in terms of the police budget helps at least settle the boat a bit. Mm, probably not. Probably not. Well, yeah, we're right. But, but at least it's, it's, it's not as many cuts as they expected, I think. No, that's true. Let's put it that way. But I had a discussion, if you like, with Simon Bailey, who leads for the... Um, um, chief constables, police yep. officer, on yep. sexual abuse, because I heard him say a few months ago that, um, in his view, there was about 50,000, mainly men, who uh, are what he called non-contact offenders, who effectively download child pornography, but you know, swear across the fingers, swear on the Bible that they've never actually touched a child. Mm. And in his view they should probably be referred to the health service for therapy rather than go through law enforcement. Now, personally, I thought that was a load of twaddle, mm. simply for the fact that doesn't, don't they understand supply and demand? Like, if these guys weren't demanding this um, material, there wouldn't be enough people supplying it and hurting children to do it. And it just didn't click as well, the fact that paedophiles notoriously lie, of course they do, and yes. also loads of these men would be members of families, and how do we know that they're safe? It just didn't click, but what what made me sad rather than upset as much as anything was I was certain this was a resource challenge. Yeah, probably is. Rather than a, a really thought through proper kind of, um, um, you know, serious way of dealing with this. Mm. I mean... I just felt very sad that this was what it was coming to. I don't well, know what your thoughts were about that. Well, I think that's right. Uh, what they're trying to do is to chop off what they think are the most, should we say, the less serious cases uh, and put them over into the field of cautions and um, therapy. But unless you look at somebody in detail, you're not going to know. As you say, they lie. They, they lie to themselves, quite apart from well. us. Um, and so, yes, that sounds like a resource issue, an absolute load of nonsense. Um, we know that something like one in 60 men are sexually attracted to children. Um, and that's a pretty daunting thing because, mm. you know, if you think two reception classes at uh, primary school, say, uh, one uh, boy, anyway, mm. we're, we're de mainly dealing with men, um, will go on to be an abuser. So... It's an enormous, we know it's an enormous task, but you can't take shortcuts. No, but it's not exclusive either, is it? I mean, there are a small amount of women who, yes. oh, in, yes. in their own right, not just mm. the, you know, the followers, not just those being manipulated, but in their own right, abuse. Yep. Yes, absolutely. We still haven't got a sort of figure on that yet, I don't think, um, but certainly mm. that's that's correct. And we've seen some pretty nasty high profile cases, as, as you know, Um 
it, it and it's always a problem isn't it because you think to yourself well women are supposed to nurture children not abuse them uh, and for a long time we almost denied it was happening apart from when they were um, almost made to do it by their, their their male partners but that's not so as you say mm. uh, but we don't quite know what the percentage is I don't think we should. I mean, my, my own view is I don't think we should make like a big deal about it, except to say that people should not just assume that it's exclusively men. Oh, no, no, absolutely right. I mean, I, I have a, a case where, um, uh, how can I say this in a short time? She was in her 70s. I knew her when I was at Ealing Police Station, very refined lady. Um, and when I was at Scotland Yard, I did a, a, a television program on child abuse. She wrote me the most amazing letter saying that, uh, that you know, nice to see you and all that sort of thing. And, and then she said it brought back memories of when she was very young. She was five and she was being sexually abused by her nanny. So they were quite a rich family and that she was rescued. And the nanny used to beat her and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, she was mm. saying that uh, this nanny was um, a paedophile. And, and the, the crunch was, she said, I've never told anybody about this before, bearing in mind she's in her 70s. And she said, now I've put this on paper, I feel I can go to sleep. Oh, well, I mean, mm. you know, but, uh, you know, good. Good mm. for her, good for you yeah. to have um, provoked that. Mm. I mean, and in a sense, I suppose it leads us into this whole issue now of historic abuse that seems to be dominating the headlines. And yeah. um, Justice Lowell the New Zealand judge that's leading this inquiry yeah. made the announcement the other day that there's likely to be something like 12 separate investigations going on mm. um, and, and it's probably going to take, she thinks, anything, not uh, well, at least five years, if not more. And the rest, yeah. And the rest, and I think it's going to probably rival the Chilcot inquiry. So into the Iraq war. So, I mean, in effect, the scale of what she's actually doing and the numbers of people and the amount of money and the amount of public tolerance that they'll have to be. Because my worry is, great, you know, on one hand, it's great. Yeah, I mean, we've waited for this for a long, long time. And we know that there's an awful lot of people out there that need to find some kind of closure, that need to get help, that need to come forward and actually tell their stories who've lived with it effectively had it eating away at them like cancer for most of their lives. But I wonder if the public might begin to get kind of abuse fatigue. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I honestly, whilst I think it's a good thing that people who have been abused have an opportunity to tell us what happened to them and for this to be dealt with properly, I I'm, I'm at a loss to see how this inquiry will end up because are we looking to criticize people who did or did not investigate things to the nth degree and if so by the time she finishes they'll probably be dead uh what's the outcome going to be oh yeah is there going to be a, a series of recommendations about what we ought to be doing well i'm sure i could you and i could sit down and, and make them up now mm. i think it's a complete and utter waste of money um I, I agree with you that it's important that victims are, are enabled in some way to, to to tell their story and to have have themselves heard. But if she's going to be looking at all of you know virtually every organisation that comes in contact with children, uh, then I'm afraid I'm afraid it, 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 it's going to be a terrible mess. Um, what are they going to conclude? Are they going to say, well, oh, you know? Um, 
the, the commissioner of police in 19 so-and-so didn't get a handle on it or this should have gone that way or that should have happened. Um, and they're going to trawl through all the old reports. And I just think that it's, it, I, I just don't think it's worth all right, I, I, I get you because I, I do understand that you're saying that from a compassionate point of view and not from any other point of view. Uh, I, I get that. I, I just wonder, though, I just wonder, I don't know. All the people who've been victimized, all the people who've been subjected to this horrific abuse mm. deserve some kind of justice. Oh, I agree, I agree. But it, I'm, I'm talking about the way in which this is being, this is being, being run. Uh, and what are the outcomes going to be? Are they looking for perpetrators? And if they find perpetrators, obviously they'll pass that on to the police, mm. um, because they, you know, they obviously can't deal with it. It needs to go through uh, the law, legal process. And so, in a sense, what they're doing, I suppose, is scoping out to see, okay, how many people are coming forward to make an allegation about that person? Okay, over to the police. Da 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 da. Over to the police. And so the police are going to. Um, end up with large-scale inquiries, which is fine. Um, but to what extent are they going to be targeting um, the church, for example? Now, the mm -hmm. church has been saying for ages, oh, we got it wrong, we got it wrong. They put all sorts of um, things in place to try and make it, to rectify that, uh, as, have, as have social workers, actually. Social services have done all things to bring themselves up to date and to take on board the recommendations of various um of various reports so you know i'm still not clear about what it is they seek to achieve well why don't we revisit it every now and again mike all right and we'll see how they're going i mean because i mean i think i mean there's obviously going to be not everything's going to be put into the public arena because they're mm. going to need to develop it and wait to report on it and make sure they've done it all. But there'll be lots of bits coming out, and I think it'd be interesting for the likes of you and me to to visit it every kind of you know six or nine months or something like that and have a yeah. look. Yeah, right. Um, all right. Look, a couple of things here. <clears throat> There's some new landscape going on here in terms of child abuse that wasn't anything like as prominent when you were firstly in the police and then even as a consultant in the intermediate time up to now. And that's the whole issue of radicalization. Yes. Um, you know, it really wasn't high on the agenda. No, no. It and is, and it's, it's quite prominent now. I mean, you must um, be asked to talk about that quite a bit, I suspect. Well, I, I've actually just um, finished updating <laughs> child protection policies in relation to um, radicalization and the prevent model mm. that, uh, applies to uh, educational establishments and care homes both registered and unregistered so um, it, it's certainly something that we've, we've got to get a grip of but I think we've it's not just it's not just how it applies to children and young people um, ie under 18 uh, there's a huge problem in society, as you know, about radicalization um, of uh, young adults. So mm. it's something, but but I think the government have gone about it quite well because they've, um, they've actually, it's, it's, it's quite joined up because when you've got a concern, then you, that goes into uh, a multi-agency approach um, and where you can actually look at what's going on and see if we can um, resist some of the some of the uh, the things that have been going on where people have just gone off to Syria or somewhere mm. um, to fight. One of the big problems, of course, is when they come mm. back. 
Yes, and also how people perceive um, the agencies here. I mean, for example, I'm aware that recently in Rotherham, which has had a bit of a bumpy ride recently anyway, mm. um, the Muslim community there has declared um, that they've got no confidence anymore in the police and that they won't be dealing with them anymore because they don't feel that, um, in their view, the Islamophobia that was going on has, has been ha half well tackled at all. And they feel in fear and they feel, you know, scapegoated and so forth. And, and the unfortunate thing is that they've targeted against the police, so you would think mm -hmm. they would be one of their allies. So that kind of activity now is quite worrying. Yeah, because we don't want it to go underground. We don't, we, yeah, we don't want um, things to just disappear into the ether. It's important that uh, that the leaders in in the, that community maintain very close contact with law enforcement and with all of the other agencies. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, really, it's a matter of sitting down and getting talking to each other, uh, because the, they're not being threatened by the police. Uh, but there have been, as you know, quite a few demonstrations by this. Uh, the, the fascists uh, 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 whites. We had one recently where I chair the safeguarding board in Bradford. There was an English mm -hmm. Defence League. Yeah, there was one in Aylesbury recently and the police were concerned about it. Mm. it that went off quite quietly. How did yours go? Was it quietly. It was yeah, raining. The best policeman <laughs> in the rain. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's always been thus. And, you know, it, and the police service does its very best to try and and to nip those sort of things in the bud. Mm, I think, I mean, uh, I just, just keep thinking back on when we first met sort of 20 years ago and what the world looked like then in terms of, you know, the the emerging the emerging issues, you know, of child abuse and whatever. Do you remember, I mean, there was, you, you must have done some work back in the 90s that, it, that, that, that was partially leading towards the 1997 Sex Offences Act. Yes, I mean, we... We were, we were lobbying for um, a lot of changes to, to legislation in order to make it easier for us to, to identify and deal with, um, with abusers. The particular one that I was keen on, uh, as you know, um, was the, regist the, the registry. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I was pushing for that particularly. Uh, and also um, I was trying to encourage... Uh, the police service, not only here, but at Europe, in um, Interpol, to create uh, a huge library of indecent images of children so that we could actually, when we when we saw images, we'd know whether or not they'd been dealt with before. I mean, I had a case, um, in fact, I spoke about it when I was in, uh, in Lyon at Interpol with colleagues from France, Germany, Switzerland, um, and we were all talking about the same man, the same bit of film, which was quite horrendous. Um, and we were all looking for the same person, which was great. We got him. Uh, the, mm. French, the French nicked him in Paris and threw the key away for a little while whilst we got ourselves together. Um, and he was, he was dealt with for very, very nasty sexual abuse on boys. And he was a lorry driver. Um, and so he was making his way through Europe, uh, uh, abusing children and actually befriending the the parents of his uh, victims and said oh you know uh, I'll take your 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 boy for uh, a week and we will go to, to to France and we'll go to Switzerland and we'll have a lovely time and da 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 
And of course, he was abusing them. Yeah, it wasn't a high up parents' agenda. Well, it still isn't to a large extent, but it certainly wasn't as high up parents' agenda as it is now. The no. idea of, of protection, it still worries me, to be honest. I don't know what you felt about this sort of talking to international colleagues, but there's one industry in this country that I still feel is hugely under-regulated, and that's homestays. The which, sorry? Homestay. Oh, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Where, you know, and... and Schools still send whole groups of people to a school in such and such a country. That's right. And they're told, oh, you can stay with the families of the pupils yeah. that go to this school. Well, that sounds great, but how do they know that they're safe? Yes, that's right. I mean, I, I in fact, did, I mean, I took part in one of these exchanges in France when I was 14. Mm. Um, wonderful time. Um, but, of course, as you say, it's a bit... Uh, it's a bit hit and miss, isn't it? Well, it's only because, like, abusers look like everybody else yeah, and, and are part of it. Anyway, but th these sort of things, I mean, I remember myself, I mean, I think we were talking earlier about when I was working with Lucy Faithful mm. and, and the work that she put in. She was a tigress, yeah. you know, to the um, 1997 Act. But I wanted to ask a little bit more about that because you will remember that half of that act was the, the creation of the Register of Offenders. Okay, yes. We all wanted that. Yeah. But the other half was extraterritorial legislation. Yeah, hugely important. But, it's, but, but where has it gone? Well, I know, I know. I, I, I think probably the difficulty remains that um, the police services in this country and the Western world still don't have the sort of liaison with um, Thailand and, and uh, other Asian uh, countries that, that, that they should have. Just to interrupt you slightly, Mike, just for a listener's point of view, the, the extraterritorial legislation gave British courts the opportunity to try somebody from this country if they abused a child abroad yeah. and came home and hadn't been tried in the country where the abuse happened. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and, and unfortunately, um, as I say, the, the amount of, of communication that there should have been just didn't just didn't happen. Um, I went to uh, Manila to talk about it and uh, at a conference, and I was on my way from the hotel to the British Embassy. I was accosted about a dozen times by children offering themselves. It was terribly sad, and all organised, of course. And the amount of corruption that there was there yeah. was huge. Anyway, well, now look. We've, we've, we've already agreed that we're going to come back and revisit some things on a sort of a fairly regular basis. That's a good idea. But I want to just finally ask about, I know you're, what you're doing at the moment and how that sort of fits in, because you're still, as far as I'm aware, of working sort of flat out and you're still committed to the whole issue of, of, of protecting children. You're, you're working with a group of care homes, is that right, on one hand? Yes, yes. Uh, Benjamin UK up in... Uh, around the Milton Keynes area, they've got 10 homes. They hope to double that in the next couple of years. Um, and I, I deal with the with safeguarding. So there's hmm. a safeguarding manager for the whole of the... Hmm. And then I'm their external consultant. But I consult on a daily or almost hourly basis. I was actually, when you told me originally, I was talking on the telephone about um, a particular problem. So, and of course, I liaise very closely with the police in Thames Valley and Bedfordshire. And so we have regular meetings and we keep each other up to date. Uh, and so I'm actually still enjoying my life, uh, trying to look after kids. And um, 
you know, operationally as well, that's important. Right, anyway, well, look, Mike, we've come kind of come to the end of the thing. How about a half, half a minute of a message you'd like to give to people working in child protection out there? Because it's, it's not an easy world to no. work in. Um, but, you know, you've had a, a fairly long run at it. I mean, what would you say were the things that people needed to bear in mind? I think the most important thing is to to communicate with each other. Don't hold information to yourself. Be free with each other in terms of what you, give opinions to each other. I'm talking about interagency stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's that's very important. But when you're dealing with victims and with offenders, it's quite it's quite tiring, and it can it can affect your health. I mean, I had a bit of a heart attack, as you know. You weren't so well either. Um, I think it takes its toll, and so you've got to try and do is distance yourself as often as you can, um, and and wind down and, and do some nice things. Uh, and you and I will have a glass of wine shortly, David. I hope, <laughs> um, in order to bring that about. Okay, Mike Hames, thanks ever so much. Thank you. Thank you.